Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We're Forward Radio, celebrating our independence at 106.5 FM and live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org. That's the place to go to become a part of this community radio station. Maybe you want to volunteer either behind the scenes or behind the microphones or chip in a few bucks to keep us on the air. We are totally listener supported and we thank everybody who's helped sustain us over these four and a half years now of broadcasting radio for the people by the people. My name is Justin Mogg, and here on Sustainability Now, what we try to do each week is take a deep dive into different topics of interest in social, economic, and environmental justice. And today, I'm really excited to have an author on the line with me in the virtual studio, joining me from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, environmental expert attorney, now retired, Joel Burkat is one of America's most well-respected environmental litigation lawyers and the award-winning author of several books. And his latest is out right now, and it is called Amid Rage, just out in February from Headline Books. And the novel takes place in the heart of Pennsylvania's extractive industry and a lot of ties to what's going on here in Kentucky and Appalachia. Burkat has completed five novels, three of which are environmental legal thrillers, Drink to Every Beast, Amid Rage, and Strange Fire. And you can learn more about him at joelburkat.com. Joel, welcome to the program. Oh, Justin, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. It's so good to have you here. It's rare for me to get an author on, especially someone who's authoring, you know, fiction. And so what I would love to do is just give our listeners a feel for your writing by starting with a little reading from Amid Rage, if you'd be willing. I think I'd be happy to do that. And let me just tell uh, your, your listeners at the outset that I've now completed for publication three books. Excellent. Uh, you mentioned, and I have several others that have been finished and that are now currently uh, awaiting publication. But the, the two that are out and the one that's coming out are all environmental legal thrillers. So I happen to like uh, legal thrillers, and uh, my personal spin on it is doing environmental legal thrillers. And uh, the only other author I can think of uh, who does that is John Grisham. Right. So it's Grisham and me. So we're <laughs> in good company anyway. So I'd be happy to read for you if, if uh, you'd like. Yeah, if you if you want to set it up at all too before, but I don't know what part you're going to read. So well, I'm going to read right from chapter one. So awesome. This is the very beginning of the story, and uh, where we meet uh, the main character, my protagonist, uh, Mike Jacobs, who's an environmental prosecutor with the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection. Great. Mike Jacobs white knuckled the overhead hand grip in the DEP jeep as it bounced across the floor of the strip mine. It felt like they were driving over logs, one after the other, fast. The mine inspector, Chris Markley, chatted away as if he was cruising down the smoothest, straightest six-lane highway. He swerved to avoid a boulder that easily would have taken out the undercarriage. Mike swallowed hard to keep his breakfast down. Hey, Chris, maybe if we slow down a bit, we can spend a little time enjoying the scenery? Mike now had his left hand on the dashboard in front of him, in addition to holding on to the overhead grip. He attempted a smile. They drove past a sign with the DEP logo on it. Mines and quarries are not playgrounds. Stay out. Keep alive. Where's the fun in that? Chris took his eyes off the narrow two-rut hall road to look at Mike. The white Jeep with the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection logo on the side bounced from rut to rut, kicking up rocks and dirt. Mike wished Chris would keep his eyes on the trail. The floor of the mine was covered with boulders and loose rock. 
The hall road wasn't much better, but at least it had the semblance of a trail. He tried to focus on distant points to keep from getting sick. He often heard people say that a coal strip mine resembled the surface of the moon. Hardly. This mine, Black Diamond Anthracite's Gilberton Mine, was part of old abandoned mine and part new workings. The abandoned part had a gray and black floor made up of waste coal and rocky overburden. Scrubby little birch trees and other vegetation that tolerated the acidic environment struggled to survive the hostile landscape. Water pooled in depressions and turned into acidic mine water where it stood. Any that managed to make it off the mine was hopelessly contaminated with acid, sulfur, manganese, and other metals that poisoned streams and made the water undrinkable. They drove past an abandoned car that had been set on fire. All that was left was a rusted hull. I want to make an impression with these guys, so we have to get to the high wall before the boys here have a chance to clean it up too much. We entered the mine 10 minutes ago, and you just know they're busy tidying up the mess from last night. The mess was the aftermath of a mishap with explosives. Lasting typically was done when the shift was on break or at the end of the day. War holes were drilled into the rock, loaded with a mixture of ammonium nitrate and fuel oil, ANFO, and then blasted. This high wall had a blowout during blasting the afternoon before and sprayed fly rock about a thousand feet onto the pit floor. Not a huge problem here since the rock didn't leave the mine and no one was hurt, but a violation nevertheless. In a more populated area, an incident like this could have easily been deadly. Chris would write it up and Mike probably would have to enforce any order he issued. I want to impress these guys with the fact that I brought my lawyer with me. Chris forced this wide smile at Mike and raised and lowered his eyebrows, Groucho style. Mike liked Chris. He was typical of the new inspectors at DEP. He was young, in his late 20s like Mike, with a degree in environmental science. He was also a fisherman and a hunter and was aggressive about enforcing the law. Mike, an assistant counsel in DEP's litigation and enforcement division, did all he could to support guys like Chris. What can you tell me about them, Mike said, as he tried to distract himself from the constant rumbling in his stomach. Not too awful. These guys have a couple of strippings, all in Schuylkill County like this one. Nothing underground. Maybe five, ten men at each site. A couple of violations a year. Nothing terrible. The foreman for this mine, Kevin Schultz, is an asshole. Me and Schultz, never see eye to eye. He won't be too happy to see us. And you heard about the fly rock incident, how? Mike eased his grip on the overhead as the hall road flattened out. The only thing better than a disgruntled former employee is a disgruntled current employee. Got a call on my cell last night and called you right away. I'm glad you were available to come up here first thing this morning. They drove past a line of derelict mining equipment standing alongside one another, like in some kind of apocalyptic movie parking lot. They had been ravaged for their spare parts. Their bodies turned into rust and their guts spilled onto the mine floor. Mike wondered if there were any DEP jeeps among the junkers. The jeep rounded an unmined outcrop right in front of them, no more than 50 feet away, was a D-10 dozer yellow, covered with dirt and coal dust, billowing diesel smoke from its single stack. Not the biggest dozer on the market, but significantly bigger than the Jeep, right in the middle of the haul road. Huge yellow blade at eye level, coming straight at them, fast. Chris stomped on the brake. The outcrop they were driving around prevented him from veering to the left. Huge boulders in the junk trucks prevented him from turning to the right. The Jeep skidded to a stop, sliding sideways like it was on ice. The dozer kept coming. Hold on. Chris popped the Jeep into reverse, and Mike looked over his shoulder. Directly behind them was a gigantic Deere 944 front-end loader, bucket at window height, bearing down on them. They were trapped. Oh, crap. Chris stomped on the brake, and the Jeep skidded backwards as the loader closed in on them from behind and the dozer from in front. Ambushed, 
They'd be sandwiched between the two gigantic machines, crushed, decapitated by the blades, death in front and behind. Mike had to find a way out. Ooh, a cliffhanger. I <laughs> love it. That's a reading from Amid Rage, new book out on uh, headline books uh, from our guest today, joining from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Joel Burkat. So sounds like maybe you're speaking from a little bit of experience, right? Uh, to tell us about your history in environmental law and were you in mines? Well, yes. And let me start out by saying that, you know, I've known and worked with quite a few miners and mine operators over the years. And these guys are the salt of the earth they're the bedrocks of their community. I mean, these are really hardworking guys, some of the hardest working guys I've ever met in my life, really. And let me also say that in the first three years of my legal career, I was an assistant attorney general with Pennsylvania's DER, as it was called at the time. And uh, my specific task was to enforce surface mining regulations. Mm. Spent a lot of time uh, learning all about strip mining and uh, spending a lot of time in strip mines in Pennsylvania and uh, really all kinds of mines. Pennsylvania has anthracite coal in addition to bituminous coal like Kentucky does and Indiana does. So I spent time in uh, both bituminous and anthracite mines and really had quite an education. Then uh, over the rest of my career, I was in private practice. And although um, I didn't represent any coal mining companies after that, I was involved in what we call in Pennsylvania non-coal, which is basically everything else. So I was in a lot of quarries and a lot of other mines, you know, where I, I got to participate and see what was going on in those mines. So one thing I try to do in my books, both in this book and in my previous book and in my third book, is like any other book, if you're reading a book about the Himalayas, you want to feel like you're in the Himalayas. Yeah. And the same thing with strip mining. If you're reading a book about strip mining, you don't want somebody to just talk about it. You want to feel like you're actually there. I'm sure some of your listeners are miners or they've spent time in mines or maybe they're trespassed in mines driving around in dirt bikes <laughs> and the like, three-wheelers. But if you're a reader, you want, to, you want to get the feeling that you're actually there. And that's what I try to do in my stories. So I guess I've spent some time in, in mines, but not as a miner or as a blaster, but as a, uh, as a lawyer doing my job as a lawyer. Well, and in a way, that kind of has to be even more scary because you're not as experienced as the miners are, right? Well, one thing that you do is that you learn to listen to them very carefully. And when they tell you not to step yeah. beyond a certain point, you don't. Uh, you certainly wear a hard hat and you certainly um, make sure that you comply with all of the safety requirements because it is a dangerous place. And the people who work there take a lot of risks when they're working underground in the deep mines. They're taking huge risks yeah. with their lives. Yeah. I mean, there's risks from heavy machinery. There's risks from coal dust and ex potential explosions. I mean, we've seen the legacy here in Kentucky of this industry on people's health, for sure. But, you know, and environmental lawyers also seeing the impact on, on the local environment as well, right? Well, absolutely. Uh, you've got several things going on, and that is the mines themselves are dangerous places. Hmm. The consequences of what happens can be devastating because, as just described in this little segment of the story, coal, for the most part, has associated with it sulfur and right. other metals, and that turns into sulfuric acid. And if it's not properly handled, you can end up with both acid discharges going into streams, as well as if it's not properly handled, you'll have coal dust going into streams. So you can end up with black streams in addition to orange and yellow streams as a result of the uh, discharges. Uh, not to mention, you've got coal dust, which is certainly a huge impact to the miners. And uh, you know, many, many mine operators have been affected by disease caused by inhaling coal dust over the course of their careers. 
And then, you know, we're not even touching the, the question of climate change, right. the huge impact that coal has on climate change. I mean, just a gigantic impact on climate change. Now, a lot of people will say, Joel, this industry is going away anyway. Are you just writing historical fiction now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never thought of it that way. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, a lot of people are waving the flag and saying that there's a lot of concern over climate change. I happen to have the statistics right here on what's been going on with mining in the United States over the years. And people think that the Biden administration is somehow or another destroying the coal industry. But the statistics are that from 2008 to 2019, so over Obama administration and the Trump administration, you had in the east of the Mississippi River, these, these statistics I'm going to read you are from the Energy Information Administration. So okay. a government agency, these are accurate to the uh, extent possible, 493 million tons of coal mined in 2008. And then in 2019, again, east of the Mississippi, you had 296 million tons wow. mined. Wow. So you went from 493 to 296. And uh, really, I would have to say, while regulation may have an impact on that, there are many other factors that have an impact on that decline. And Pennsylvania is the same. Uh, when you look at Pennsylvania, my home state, you know, you, you go from coal in 2010, representing 48% of the electrical generation. Hmm. And then in 2019, you have coal representing 17% <laughs> of electrical generation. Now, what's going on in Pennsylvania, which may be different than Kentucky, is that natural gas in those same years went from 15% to 43%. Of course, what we have up here is, is Marcellus gas and uh, fracking, and, uh, and that has really made a huge difference. I just read a couple of articles in the newspaper just in the past couple of days that coal-fired power plants in Baltimore area and Ohio and Pennsylvania are closing. And they're closing right now. They're closing over the next couple of months. Now, they're saying for two reasons, increased regulation, but they're also saying the economics yeah. of running a coal-fired power plant are such that they're closing them down. And what we're seeing is that uh, really the economics of coal is just not there. So, you know, going back to your question, Coal has been on the way out for many years, not just in the past six months, but for many years. And the main part of it, I believe, is the economics of it. I would say secondarily are the regulations. Well, and I was being flippant because, of course, the legacy of coal is going to be with us in people's health, in the health of the land, the, the mines themselves, right? So this is an issue we're going to have to deal with for a long time. But yeah, uh, it, th those are good to get those updated figures. It's encouraging. Uh, my guest today here on Sustainability Now is a former environmental attorney and now environmental author writing environmental legal thrillers like his new book, Amid Rage, which came out from uh, headline books in February and is now just out in audiobook format, too. And Joel pointed out before we got talking that you can get an autographed copy if you'd like by supporting a local bookstore there in Harrisburg called Midtown Scholar Bookstore. So you can find an autographed copy there. But uh, look up this book, A Mid-Rage, online. Uh, it's pretty exciting stuff. And I want to talk a little bit more about the genre, too. You know, there's these different terms that get bandied about. And you actually did a blog post on this at joelburkat.com about, you know, what exactly is the difference between eco-thrillers, environmental thrillers, and environmental legal thrillers? Well, I'll tell you, and that's a great question, and I'm glad you took a look at my blog and, and, and teed up that nice softball question for me. <laughs> no, not much hardball here on Forward Rate. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, when I started writing uh, these stories, 
just so you know, Drink to Every Beast is about dumping hazardous waste in a river. Mm, yeah. And uh, Mike Jacobs, my protagonist, his first big case that he's handling, trying to find the dumpers. This story, Amid Rage, is about a mining permit battle. And then Strange Fire is about uh, fracking in Pennsylvania, oh, in the Marcellus region. So uh, when that comes out, that'll be my, that's my big uh, fracking book where I spend a lot of time talking about fracking. But when I started writing these stories, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of thrillers. I like thrillers. And I'd read books like Zoo by Patterson and Jurassic Park and other stories like that. And I really enjoyed them. I also read The Monkey Wrench Gang, where I suspect you've also read that as well. Oh, what a classic, uh, yeah. <laughs> looking at your title with the now with the exclamation yes. point after because of course in the monkey wrench gang edward abbey uh, creates a an environmental activist group called earth now um so i looked at these stories and i said well you know here's my story it's an environmental legal thriller here are these books written by grisham you know like the appeal and the pelican brief they're also environmental thrillers and then you look at zoo which is sort of a uh, science fiction kind of a book we look at other books like that, Jaws, you know, Jurassic Park, these stories that are environmental and, and thrillers. And I thought they're, they're all being called eco-thrillers, but there's something different about them. So what I did was I tried to organize them differently. And I decided that there were stories that were environmental thrillers. And so the granddaddy of them all is Monkey Wrench Gang by Abby, which is just a great story. And I would highly recommend it to your uh, yeah. listeners. If they haven't read it, they, they really ought to read it. It's a great story and written by a great writer really at his prime edward abbey wrote that story and just just was a great book does that date back to the 80s when when did that come out um i happen to have it here is 1975 75 okay yeah but other stories too carl hyacin who is a terrific writer he writes crime books but many of his crime books take place in the everglades and he's got often a very serious eco or environmental aspect to it He, he just wrote one uh, recently called Squeeze Me, which is about uh, boa constrictors that have been released oh my gosh. into the Everglades. It, it's it's a truly a hilarious book, but he also has <laughs> a big environmental message about uh, releasing non-native species into the wild and the impact that it has. But he's written a few, uh, like Tourist Season, and many of his other books also have that in it as well. So you've got those environmental thrillers. They're stories that are, I'm going to say, not science fiction-y, like Jurassic Park is, they're really more, you know, this could really happen kind of story. Uh-huh. Then you've got the eco-thrillers. So you've got Jaws and Jurassic Park and Relic by Preston and Child and Zoo by James Patterson. These deal with environmental issues of one kind or another, but there's a certain science fiction element to them. You know, Jurassic Park, we all know that story. We've seen the movie, probably read the book, you know, about, you know, messing around with the DNA of these dinosaurs and bringing them back to life. You know, Jaws, you know, again, oh, yeah. there's a science fiction-y elements of that as well. You know, the, the, for some reason, the sharks go crazy. And uh, Relic and Reliquary by Preston and Child. Again, there's a certain science fiction-y element to those stories. Zoo, for sure. And then you've got uh, environmental legal thrillers. So Pelican Brief, of course, is the earliest one that I could find. And you've got The Appeal by Grisham. And you've also got Grey Mountain by John Grisham. And there are a couple of others as well. Interestingly, a couple of people have asked me over the years, uh, whether a civil action and dark waters the film that came out two years mm, ago yeah. whether they are environmental legal thrillers and i would say no only in the sense that they're nonfiction. so right. a civil action by jonathan Haar is an actual story about contamination of groundwater in i believe it's waltham massachusetts and uh, dark waters which is also a, uh, a true story 
So they're not fiction, but you, if you read those books or if you see those movies, and they're both, they're both made into movies, there's a certain novelistic quality to them. And then you've got the most recent of all of these, which is called Cli-Fi. Yes, I wanted to ask Cli-fi, about that. Cli-Fi you know, deals with climate change. And very often the Cli-Fi books, as I understand the genre, they do have a kind of a science fiction component to them or speculative fiction, as we authors would designate it. So sort of a what if. What if we don't take care of climate change today? What, what's going to happen in 5, 10, 25, 50, 100 years? How is that going to impact the environment? So there's a futuristic or speculative or science fiction component to it. And that genre is probably, of all of them, is probably the one that's growing the fastest. You know, there have been a number of you know, really good books. Probably the most famous recent one is Barkskins by Annie Cruels, uh, which was made into a uh, television movie not too long ago. Hmm. So you've got these stories that are out there that otherwise would all fit into the eco-fiction genre, but there, there's something different about them. Well, I love this merging of science, uh, law, and and fiction. Uh, and I know I have my opinions about it, but I'd love to hear from you about why you think this is important work. Uh, is there something about literature that uh, helps us understand these issues in a different way? Yeah, I think so. And uh, one thing that I try to do in my stories is I very much try to educate my readers. And I try to educate them in an even-handed way without beating them over the head with it. Right. And it, you know, it, it'd be very easy to beat people over the head with a, with a story and, and say, you must learn this. You've got to learn. You know, and, but what I try to do is I try to present perspectives through my characters. So in uh, Mid-Rage, I have two characters in particular, Ernie Renati, who's the owner of Rhino Mining Company. And his lawyer, Sid Feldman, a Philadelphia lawyer in a shark skin suit. (laughs) (laughs) Those two guys are absolute strong believers in coal mining. And they present the coal miners perspective. They Mm. present the coal mining story. Why, from their perspective, why coal is, is very important to the economy, why it's important to energy production and the like. Then you've got the neighbors who take the opposite position. They're really anti mining. You've got Mike, who's also an anti mining guy, who's, but Mike is, because of Mike's position, he's, he's sort of stuck in the middle on that. Mm. But from his personal position, he's anti-mining. So I try to present the mining case and the anti-mining case. I try to present the climate change issues. And I try to present it in a way that is understandable to the readers. And it's being, you know, people aren't getting, I'm not beating heads to get that information into you. In the story that I've, I've recently completed that hopefully will be out by the end of the year, Strange Fire, I do the same thing with fracking and with natural gas drilling. So I've created a, a made-up gas drilling company called Yukon Oil and Gas, and it's basically Yukon versus the local citizens. And again, Mike is, has always got to be stuck in the middle because that's where the, the, the fiction really uh, gets interesting. So he's, he's again stuck in the middle on that case, but he's actually prosecuting or at times prosecuting and at times defending uh, the department's position. But again, I try to present the issue, and, and I feel that my readers – your listeners, my readers, they're smart people. They can make up their minds for right. themselves, but they want to have that information. And so sometimes, whether it's Grisham doing it or whether it's some of these other writers doing it, it's easier for people to accept that information, to get that information into them through fiction than it is through reading a book that is a, a nonfiction book. Uh, in my legal career, I wrote or edited two books, big, big and when I say big, I mean two-volume big books, wow. one on uh, environmental law and one on oil and gas law. And you can read that and you can learn everything you need to know about environmental law and oil and gas law in about 2,000 pages. 
I mean, it's got a lot of stuff in there. There's no fiction in that whatsoever. But that's not the way most people want to learn. So if you can read a 320-page novel, that's going to be a much more fun way of learning this information, hopefully getting it in a way that is understandable. And that's one of the things that I strive to do in my books, is to make it very understandable for people. Well, and I'll say this, too. I think it's not just an efficient way to convey ideas and information, but I think sustainability demands two things that often get ignored when we think about science and law and all these other issues, which is it's going to require some empathy and some imagination. And that's what literature does for us, I think. It helps us walk a mile in somebody's shoes, right? And it helps us imagine a way forward together, right? Uh, and I, I don't know that maybe maybe your books don't end on <laughs> at the end of the rainbow kind of thing, but uh, it, these are the struggles that we're going to have to face if we're going to build a just transition for, for Appalachia, for the coal fields, right? We have to figure out how these communities can move forward in a more sustainable way, and, and, and we have to be empathetic to the people whose lives have been wrapped up in, the, in this industry, right? Yeah, I think you're raising a really important point, and that is that as much as I do believe that ultimately we will be done with coal at some point in the future, and I don't know exactly when that point is, Biden administration has said 2030 will be carbon neutral. Whether it's 2030 or, or at some point in the future, you can't just say, we're just going to stop it. We're just going to stop it because of the statistics that I read before. If in Pennsylvania, just because that's what I happen to have here, basically one-fifth of the uh, energy production is coming from coal, as much as we'd like to say that let's just immediately start using more sustainable things like wind power, solar power, you know, being more conscious about our energy usage and the like, you're not going to make up that one-fifth. And, and by the way, Pennsylvania is relatively low because mm-hmm. of the Marcellus gas we have. You go to other states you're really looking at 25 or 30%, maybe 40% coal usage still. So you can't just stop that. And in my pragmatic way of of thinking about these things, I realize that there's going to have to be a transition. One of the most important things, I believe, and if you take nothing away from this, other than this point, it's this, and that is that as we transition away from coal, you have to take care of the people in the mining regions of these states, whether it's Kentucky or Pennsylvania or West Virginia, wherever it is, and you can't simply say, oh, well, look, we've created you know, a million new jobs in the Silicon Valley or in South Carolina. They've got to be in the coal mining communities of Kentucky. They've got to be in the coal mining communities of West Virginia and Pennsylvania and wherever, wherever those jobs are going to disappear from. Because you can't, we're certainly not going to expect that we're going to have this gigantic transfer of people. We're going to move suddenly, lose their jobs in, in Western PA and move out to you know, the Silicon Valley in California, move to South Carolina and work in a factory, those jobs have got to appear in places like Kentucky. They've got to appear in places like Indiana. They've got to be in places like West Virginia too. So all of that has to happen if we're really going to be able to transition. The other thing too is there's a political reality as well. And that is that the senators and congressmen from those states are going to do everything they can as they should to protect their people. Now, I think at the same time, that protection involves uh, transitioning away from fossil fuels. I mean, the, the health of people and the health of our environment and our climate is obviously supremely important, but the immediate needs of the people in those communities have got to be taken care of because otherwise, none of this is going to happen. You've got to be able to convince the Joe Mansions and other people like that, that there's a way of doing this and that it can be done in a way that's going to benefit the people in his state or in their districts. 
My guest today here on Sustainability Now is former environmental attorney and now an author of environmental legal thrillers. His name is Joel Burkhat. You can find him at joelburkhat.com. I should spell that out for you all. J-O-E-L-B-U-R-C-A-T.com. And that's where you can find out how to get his latest text, Amid Rage, which is just out uh, in February from Headline Books and is now available on audiobooks. And his uh, former book, Drink to Every Every Beast. And we're talking about uh, the importance of literature in uh, finding a way forward for us in sustainability. Uh, and these books are super relevant to those of us in the Ohio River Valley uh, and, and anywhere impacted by extractive industries. Uh, and, and, and they're great reads. Uh, but they're also, you know, t- talking about issues that are current in the headlines. So I don't know if we can spend the, the last part of our conversation here talking about some of the issues that have come up. And you've already touched a bit about it on, on Biden's goals, for instance, but the G7 has just met and can't agree on coal, right? <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, uh, just yesterday on June 12, the um, G7 could not agree on uh, reduction of coal. That's something that they cannot agree on. I, I suspect that countries like the United States and others were unwilling to compromise on that. I suspect England, by the way, you know, one of the more interesting statistics mm. I've seen on England is that they have almost entirely transitioned away from coal. Yeah. They they use very, very little anymore for energy production. I think they're down to, they might have maybe two or three coal-fired power plants left in the whole country. And um, just a couple of, uh, of strip mines that are left. Very, very few uh, coal resources are needed in that country. Uh, but other countries are still importing it and they're still using it. I know France uses a huge amount of nuclear. And so they probably don't have that issue. But other countries would have that. Germany, I suspect, is a country that is still heavily dependent on, on coal. And so it's a, an international problem in the sense that we want to transition away from it. China uses eight times the amount of coal that the United States does wow. for energy production. India uses twice the amount of coal yeah. uh, that we use for energy production. So, you know, getting those countries to ratchet back on their coal uh, use for energy production it, it's going to be a challenge because the, the, the economies of those countries are really dependent currently on coal, and it's going to take a long time for that to change. So that's the G7, and uh, I'll just say one interesting thing that I had. One of my colleagues at my law firm, my old law firm, Saul Ewing, left us and got the coolest title of any environmental lawyer I've ever met. Her name is Jane Kaczynski, and Jane's title when she went to work for the British government in the United States was... Senior Climate Change Advisor to Her Majesty's Government. It was really cool. Mm. Anyway, she um, brought around some members of Parliament. And I remember talking with them, and uh, they were telling me about how it was so important for England to move away from a coal economy. And one of them reminded me of the old saying, you know, carrying coals to Newcastle. Well, Newcastle was a, yeah. a port in England, and that's something that you wouldn't bother doing because there's so much abundance of coal there. And so they were telling me this was already uh, five or six years ago how England was moving away from coal even back then, and to the extent that now uh, they, they hardly use any. So it, it's going to be a process, and you know, there's not going to be any magic wand that's going to be waved and coal's going to stop being used. And once uh, the United States ultimately moves away from it, you still are going to have a tremendous amount that's going to be used in places like China and India and other countries too. Well, so what do you think about the Biden administration's uh, climate initiatives so far and, and the goals that 
his administration has set forth with respect to greenhouse gas emissions reduction and talking about things like carbon capture technology. I mean, what, what are some of your thoughts about all that? I think they're great policy goals, and I hope that he can achieve them. You know, the uh, various things that he has in his goals for greenhouse gas uh, reduction are investing in infrastructure and innovation, getting away from carbon-based uh, fuels, although he's been pretty careful to say getting away from carbon-based fuels in energy production. So I think we're going to see carbon fuels for a long time to come in cars. Although, interestingly, we see more and more vehicles and trucks on the market even uh, that are electric vehicles. Yep. Yep. And, you know, I, I've certainly read, as I'm sure your listeners have read, you know, from people who say, oh, this is just politics and this is just, pe- you know, the, the auto manufacturers and the others, you know, playing to politics. And I don't believe that that's the case at all. I think what they're playing to is the consumer. The demand. Consumers yeah. want these kinds of vehicles. Consumers want a vehicle that you can plug in and that does not rely on gasoline. But I, I think that Biden has, some, has laid out some great goals He's got a great team. He's got, you know, like the climate change dream team working for him. And the same thing, by the way, on environmental justice, that he's got an environmental justice dream team working for him. And uh, there's a political reality. Look, let's face it. The Senate is 50-50. And you've got one Senator, Joe Manchin, who's a, you know, right smack dab in the middle. And they've got to satisfy him on many, many issues. The House of Representatives is very, very close and very tight. So it, there, there's no magic wand that can be waved to uh, make sure that these initiatives go through. It's it's a tough political slog on all of these things. And we've got another election coming up. You can believe it's yeah. another year or so. And that will potentially change the complexion of Congress again. So I think uh, Biden has some great policy goals out there. And it would be great if we could implement those over time. But I think it's going to it's gonna take a lot of work and a lot of political will to be able to do that. Yeah. Oh. It does seem savvy to tie some of these goals to a Build Back Better plan that's talking about infrastructure, that's talking about how we handle some of these devastated mining and mill towns like your novels cover, right? So that seems like a way maybe to do some of the balance work of the various interests that might pull in people like a Joe Manchin from a coal state in West Virginia, right? It's funny that coal in that way is still a center of power in our nation. <laughs> It's true. And, and let me say that, you know, they've been very conscientious about saying in every pronouncement that they've made uh, that this is all about jobs yeah, and all about jobs in America. And uh, they say that over and over again, and they really want that to be the case. They want these jobs to be American jobs that are going to be created and that you're not going to be creating new jobs in China or new jobs, you know, in some other country, but these are going to be American jobs that are going to be created. And like I said earlier in your program, you can't create a million new jobs in Southern California and, and, and put your thumbs up and say, hey, we, we had success. Even though we lost all of these jobs in the coal region, we have success. You've got to create those jobs in the places where the, the people are who could potentially be losing their jobs in the coal industry. Mm. I mean, keep in mind, those are, for the most part, really good paying jobs mm. and they're local jobs. So you've got to create jobs in those communities as we transition away from a carbon-based economy. 
Well, and this issue of loss of jobs and manufacturing, it's not just about the coal industry going away, right? They call it the Rust Belt for a reason. Uh, what, what, What can we date this back to? The Reagan era, when a lot of our manufacturing started to go overseas, and in fact, tied to the coal industry, right? Like coal is essential for the steel industry, for the auto industry. And so this is kind of a long story uh, that we have yet to address in America. And now seems to be the time. Well, it probably goes back even further than that. I, w- I would trace it back to the uh, early 60s and 70s uh, when steel, for example, is a great example. When steel started to uh, go downhill and uh, we started seeing the steel industry disappear, some communities absolutely lost out. They absolutely lost jobs. They lost industries. And those communities you know, look awful today. Other communities, like Pittsburgh, for example, were able to transition from, away from steel and tra- transition into education, into pharmaceuticals mm. and healthcare. And Pittsburgh today is a very different looking city than it looked 35 or 40 years ago. That's right. But one thing that, that I like to point out is this, is that you have to look at what was considered the heavy industry of the day back in the day. So back in the day, the heavy industry was logging. Mm. And they logged out all of the eastern part of the United States because we needed that wood. And in the midst of that was tanning. So they, yeah. they used the bark from those trees for the tanning industry. And canals were huge, especially in the northeastern part of the United States. Huge issues. Uh, railroads, you know, the, the oil drilling of the uh, second half of the 19th century and steel production. These were huge industries. Now, put steel production to the side because we're all going to say that's a big heavy industry. But keep in mind, if you lived on a farm out in the woods and somebody was pushing through a canal, that was the equivalent of a huge you know, steel mill going up next to you. And it changed things. It brought in people from outside the uh, community who'd never been there before. It brought in uh, a lot of commerce that had never existed before. And it really changed the complexion of your community. But guess what? When that canal went away, your community, which had grown because of that canal that was there, or because of that logging industry, because of that tanning industry, it deteriorated because there was probably very little planning that took place. Now, if the canal was replaced by railroads, maybe you, your community went back up. But so we've seen these ebbs and flows, these rises and falls of industries over the years and industries that while today the logging industry sounds kind of quaint, back in the day, it was anything but. It was the heavy industry of the day. Canals were the heavy industry of the day. And then when they went away, those communities suffered. So we have to keep that in mind, and we don't want to re- replicate that again today any more than we already have. That's, that's great historical perspective. Thank you for bringing that in. Uh, unfortunately, we're nearing the end of our time together, and, and one last question has popped into my mind that I, we should have been talking when we were talking about writing, which is, how has the pandemic influenced you as an author? Uh, did it give you more time to write because you were stuck at home? And then what happens to book tours now? Are you going to return to that, or <laughs> what do you think? I hope so. I've done a number of uh, Zoom book tours, right. and that's been fun to do. Uh, but I really like meeting people directly, and I like signing books with people. And while I do some signing by mail and then mail them to people, it's not quite the same thing as interacting with somebody and talking with them and uh, answering their questions. And some of the really interesting questions come up during those uh, book tours, and I really enjoy doing that. But in terms of the writing, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you right now from my little you know writing yeah. area here in my house. And this is where I work six days a week. You know, I'm here from early in the morning until I get tired of writing in the afternoon. 
And uh, that hasn't changed very much. I did write a story. So I don't just write environmental legal thrillers. I did write a story during the pandemic, which is a young adult post-pandemic oh, wow. uh, thriller called Lullabies and Other Lies. <laughs> and I did write that, which is, which is a sort of a what if. What if anybody over the age of 16 dies as a result of a worldwide pandemic? And all that's left are children who have to fend for themselves. Mm. So it's sort of a uh, combination of Lord of the Flies meets the road. <laughs> so it's a pretty bleak story. <laughs> and I've written, I wrote another book. I wrote actually a really interesting book. I'm working on that right now, finishing it up, called uh, Temperature Rising, in which a young woman back in 1988 just happens to, by accident, be allowed into a room of lobbyists in Washington, D.C. And what are they discussing? They're discussing trying to put the brakes on any federal climate change research. And they think that she's just another one of the lobbyists. She goes back to her law school and they all say, well, you've got to keep going back. You've got to see what you can find out. And, and she somehow or another hooks up with a New York Times reporter and uh, he wants her to go back. He's, he's got Pulitzer. <laughs> he sees Pulitzer written all over this. And so she goes back and, and gets involved in trying to learn as much as she can about this and all the congressmen that are getting bought off by the industry. Of course, she manages to fall in love with one of the lobbyists, which makes it very complicated for her. So it's really a romantic suspense thriller. And then another story that I'm working on right now is a uh, book called Little Brother, which, if you can imagine this scenario, takes place a few years in the future. And what you have is a local police department going to war with the FBI. Oh. So, could it happen? <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm writing that too. So I, I've, been, I've been very productive during the uh, pandemic. And Sounds I, like I know it. some writers have not been. It's been very productive for me. I do miss meeting face to face with folks. And that's that's one of the fun things about being a writer. is Being yeah. able to talk with people who are learning about you for the first time or who are your fans. Well, hopefully you'll get to return to that soon. Boy, thank you so much for taking the time today, Joel. This has been such a treat to have an author on the air with me, joining us from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about his books, his latest Amid Rage, at joelburkat.com. Keep writing, man. This is great stuff, and uh, best of luck to you. Well, thank you very much, Justin, and thanks. And like I I told you earlier, um, I've listened to some of your programs and uh, it's awesome and great stuff and uh, and you do some nice work and i'm really pleased with the opportunity to be on your program so Wonderful. thank you very much for that all right we'll have to have you back on when a future book comes out thank you so much joel stay thank you Jeff. stay tuned everybody coming up in just a minute your community action calendar with all kinds of ways to get engaged in sustainability now so stay tuned Time in August feels like we're gonna melt away. And I've been working all the time, and I need some holiday. Watching all the clouds roll in, I'm dreaming of another place. One thing I know for sure, it feels like rain. Give me that sweet, sweet summer rain. 
wash away my blues again That sweet, sweet summer and we are back here on Forward Radio with me, Justin Mogg, and Sustainability Now. It's time, my friends, to get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out and get ready to take action for sustainability. So much going on this week in Louisville. It is the week of Juneteenth, and there is so much to celebrate. Uh, first of all, on Tuesday, June 15th at 6 p.m., there'll be a virtual event called Let's Talk Bridging the Divide by the Unknown Project. The Fraser History Museum is pleased to partner with Idea. X Lab, Roots 101, and Louisville Metro Government on the Unknown Project. Join us as we share stories of black men, women, and children, both known and unknown, who were formerly enslaved right here in Louisville, Kentucky, in conversation with key partners and artists working on the project. This discussion will take place the same week as the public art unveiling and site dedication that I'm going to be telling you about coming up on Saturday. You can learn our city's history, including the vital role that the Ohio River played on the journey to freedom. Spoken word artist Hannah Drake will perform her original work, Finding Me. You'll also meet the artists behind the limestone reconciliation benches, which are meant to teach and to inspire. Panelists for Tuesday's 6 p.m. virtual event include Hannah Drake, Josh Miller from Ideas X Lab, William Duffy, another artist, and Dave Caudill, also an artist, Lamont Collins, president and CEO of Roots 101, Sarah Lindgren, public arts administrator with Louisville Metro Government, and it'll all be moderated by Rachel Pratt, Platt, director of community engagement from the Fraser. You can get details and register for a Tuesday's 6 p.m. virtual event called Let's Talk Bridging the Divide at frasermuseum.org. Tuesday is packed with other great things, though. You're going to have to choose here. Also at 6 p.m. on Zoom, uh, the Louisville Community Grocery is hosting their all-owners meeting. They're on a mission to get 100 new owners by June 30th. All the details are at louisvillecommunitygrocery.com. And in person at 6.30 p.m. in beautiful Central Park in Old Louisville, the Jefferson County Chapter of Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, the good old KFTC, will be holding a barbecue. And they encourage everyone to join us for their first in-person event since last year. Although we weren't able to get back to our normal chapter meeting space just yet, we are ready to get together and finally share space and food. We'll be meeting in Central Park on the west side of the park, just past the amphitheater. This event won't have an agenda or any KFTC forms to fill out. It's just a hangout. KFTC will provide both meat and vegan options for main dishes. The rest of the meal will be potluck style. Again, 6.30 on Tuesday the 15th in Central Park and there's more at kftc.org. After that, at 7 p.m. on Tuesday the 15th, uh, our proud Forward Radio community partner, the Greater Louisville Sierra Club, invites you to their monthly program. This month featuring urban strategies to support our more than human friends from bees to birds to bats species around the world are threatened at unprecedented rates well professor margaret carrero will explain on tuesday's online 7 p.m event how residents in cities and suburbs can protect native 
species by weaving our local native plants and animals into the very places where we live and work. She wants people to know that they can make a large difference in conservation of local species through the plantings in their home landscapes. We do not have to wait for government or experts to do it. Community Conversation on Cities is all about keeping our common species common. Professor Carrero is retired from the Department of Biology at UofL, where she was a faculty member for 18 years. Her research focused on understanding how urban environments affect nature in cities and suburbs. In addition to giving public talks on various ecological topics, Professor Carrero continues her advocacy for nature in retirement by serving on the boards of Wild Ones Louisville and the Louisville Climate Action Network and Louisville Audubon Society. She's a busy woman and an amazing one to hear. The Sierra Club's programs, live or virtual, are always free and open to the public. And to register for this Zoom meeting, just go to louisvillesierraclub.org. And the title is, Can We Save Native Species in Cities? It's Tuesday the 15th at 7 p.m. online. Whew, that's it for Tuesday. Let's move on to Wednesday. Coming up on Wednesday the 16th at 10 a.m., Jefferson County Cooperative Extension is continuing their free virtual spring series of classes. This Wednesday at 10 a.m., it's Common Garden Insects. Who are they and what do they do? Learn about common insects you'll find in your yard or garden and learn to tell who's a friend and who's a foe, my friends. Not all insects are the same. There are beneficial ones that we want to protect and expand. So register for this event to receive the login. Just go to facebook.com slash Jefferson CO extension. Facebook.com slash Jefferson Co extension. The series continues on the 23rd with a class on common plant diseases, what to look for. On the 30th, they'll be covering common posting and it wraps up on July 7th with scouting for bad insects again Wednesdays at 10 a.m. online go to facebook.com slash Jefferson Co extension also on Wednesday in the evening on June 16th at 6 p.m. it's Green Drinks Louisville featuring two of the Louisville Sustainability Council's community micro grant winners Kipple's Energy Conservation Outreach Program and Jefferson Memorial Forest Electric Vehicle Charging Station our guest speakers for the June Green Drinks will be Portia Watson from Wilderness Louisville and Dawn Cooley from Kentucky Interfaith Power and Light they'll be discussing their grant funded sustainability projects Portia will We'll be describing plans for an EV charging station for public use and associated public education at Jefferson Memorial Forest in partnership with Evolve KY. Dawn will be describing an energy conservation outreach program which will target faith communities with median incomes at or below the federal poverty level for Kentucky. Many low-income communities suffer from both the financial drain of heating and cooling aging buildings used for faith worship as well as being disproportionately affected by poor air quality. This grant allows expansion of an ongoing outreach program that works alongside houses of worship and charitable organizations that serve these low-income communities to reduce their energy impact through a combination of reducing their carbon footprint and shifting to renewable energy. Communities which are disproportionately affected by pollution and climate change deserve attention when focusing on energy conservation. Communities of color, black Kentuckians, and low-income communities are directly impacted as a result of abusive industry practices that create pollution Harm, harm drinking water, and conditions for lower life expectancy. Learn more and find the link to register at louisvillesustainabilitycouncil.org. And again, that's Wednesday the 16th at 6 p.m. The next Green Drinks at louisvillesustainabilitycouncil.org. 
Also on Wednesday the 16th, Russell, a place of promise, is starting their summer learning series on community land trusts. You can learn more at facebook.com slash russellpromise. And this is a summer learning series about a community land trust, which is a community-led nonprofit organization that governs the assets of a land trust and provides stable housing rates to uplift affordable home ownership. There'll be two events in the series. June 16th, it's virtual at 6 p.m. on the Russell, A Place of Promise Facebook Live. You'll get live conversations with community members invested in the development of community land trusts locally and nationally. Then on June 29th, there'll be an in-person event at 6 p.m. at 1718 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard with, with a free food truck. You can bring your lawn chairs and family. There'll be a community learn cer- learning circle and activities with Play Cousins Collective. We'll learn how is a community land trust operated, what are the potential benefits of one in a historically black neighborhood, and the difference between traditional home ownership and home ownership in a community land trust. For more information, you can contact maya.white, M-A-Y-A dot white, at citiesunited.org and find the Facebook Live at 6 p.m. on Wednesday at facebook.com slash Promise. Coming up on Thursday, June 17th, it is the Kentucky Waterways Alliance's Wild and Scenic Film Festival from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m., either from your home digitally or at Sourback Family Drive-In out in LaGrange. KWA is thrilled to announce the return of their signature annual event, the 13th Annual Wild and Scenic Film Festival. This year's event will be especially unique because of the hybrid format. You can either watch comfortably in your home, uh, virtually or in person at a socially distanced event out at the Sourback Family Drive-In in LaGrange. Considered one of the nation's premier environmental and adventure film festivals, this year's Wild and Scenic Films combined stellar filmmaking, beautiful cinematography, and first-rate storytelling to inform, inspire, and ignite solutions and possibilities to restore the Earth and human communities while creating a positive future for the next generation. You can get all the details and tickets to this benefit event at kwalliance.org slash wildandscenic. That's kwalliance.org for the Thursday, June 17th, 7.30 p.m. Wild and Scenic Film Festival. Now, coming up Saturday, there's a bunch of great events. Uh, the Society of Urban Perambulators will be taking a tour of Origin Park on Saturday, covered on this show a few months, many months ago now, actually. They'll be meeting up at 9.45 a.m. on Saturday at the Clark Cabin at 1021 Harrison Avenue over in Clarksville, Indiana. The Urban Design Studio at UofL recently started this Society of Urban Perambulators as a group that meets up once a month or so to walk around a selected neighborhood, meet with the people who live and work there, and begin building community through understanding different parts of the city. The next event will be Saturday the 19th in the new Origin Park, just across the river in southern Indiana. And it will be a little different than the past neighborhood strolls. First, they'll be shifting the focus to the Indiana side of the river. Second, they'll be exploring the future of a new urban park with our good friend, former guest on this program, the executive director of Origin Park, Scott Martin. Origin Park is over 
over 600 acres with one and a half miles of shoreline, 180 bird species, 12,000 years of human settlement, 75 years of destruction, all coming together as one systemic landscape vision. You won't want to miss this opportunity to see and hear about a park designed to reshape and rewild our urban core. This walk will be approximately one and a half miles on mostly paved trails with some grassy hills. These events are free, but please email patrick.piuma, P-I-U-M-A, at gmail.com to RSV, so VP, so that they can keep the tour size manageable. Details are at udstudio.org. That's for the Urban Design Studio, udstudio.org, Saturday the 19th, 9.45 a.m., out at the Clark Cabin in Clarksville, Indiana. Now, let's talk about Juneteenth. It is this Saturday, June 19th, and there will be events from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. based out of Roots 101, the African American Museum, at its new location, 124 North 1st Street. Juneteenth, past, present, and future. Juneteenth marks the announcement, of course, of the Emancipation Proclamation. While it was signed in 1863, we understand with COVID-19 and the racial uprisings of 2020 that we still have a long way to go when it comes to facing racism, health disparities, and medical mistrust. To that end, Ideas X-Lab, Roots 101, Fraser Museum, and Louisville Metro have worked for several years on the Unknown Project, which will use public art installations and experiences to support Louisville, the fourth most segregated city in America, in our current efforts in dealing with racism and inequity. Juneteenth will mark the unveiling of the first Unknown Project public art installation on the banks of the Ohio River. We hope you'll mark your calendars and join us on Saturday for this event. Events include uh, poetry performances at Route 101, Roots 101, the African American Museum, starting at noon. Then from 1230 to 1.30, it'll be a journey in our footprints along the river walk. And then the Unknown Project site dedication and ceremony will take place at 1.30 p.m. on the waterfront between 9th and 10th Streets. Louisville Metro will also host a COVID-19 vaccination site open from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. beside the Bell of Louisville. More information is at unknownprojectky.com. There are other Juneteenth events, too, though. There'll be a festival, a Melonaire Marketplace, uh, June 19th from noon to 6 p.m. at 4th Street Live. You can stop by and support Louisville's African-American-owned businesses and artists by visiting nearly 50 black-owned businesses showcasing their wares and services at 4th Street Live throughout the day from noon to 6 p.m. This Juneteenth is both a commemoration and a celebration. This event will feature live musical performances by a variety of national and Louisville-based acts. Details are at 4thstreetlive.com. That's the number 4-T-H-S-T-L-I-V-E.com. And finally, there's going to be a Juneteenth Community Health Fair and Vaccination Station on Saturday from noon to 3 at the Big Four Lawn. Free health screenings courtesy of Norton Healthcare. It's part of Mayor Greg Fisher's Juneteenth Community Celebration, so don't miss it. Saturday, noon to 3, free health fair and vaccination station at the Big Four Lawn. And that is all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I will be back in your ears again in one week's time. Be well, my friends. Thank you.